Well, um, can I add my own formal welcome to Steve's? Uh, my name's Mike, and uh, it's good to see you. No, I know most of you. Welcome if you're on the live stream, if you're joining us. It's great to have you on board as well. Um, this talk, and I've, we actually postponed this talk. It, it was due to go on last week, um, but um, we're doing it today. Here's a talk on marriage, and I've advertised it as a talk on Christian marriage. But actually, first and foremost, it's a talk on the book of Ephesians. We're going through the book of Ephesians, the, the letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, we're doing chapters 4, 5, and 6. So this is the next section in the book of Ephesians. So first and foremost, it's, it's actually just covering this next section of the Bible. I'm not trying to do a topic talk on marriage and trying to cover everything that the Bible says on marriage. That's not my um, focus and attempt this morning. But this is a really important text, one we should be familiar with, and uh, we're going to look at it together. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say by way of introduction is that a few weeks ago, I think it was March the 6th, we had a talk on singleness. Um, so if you're coming at this having not heard that talk, then I, I can highly recommend it. It got us all talking, it <laughs> generated some conversation around here. But important for balance to have the two. So please do go back and have a look at that. And this talk, though it is a talk on marriage, is not purely for married people. It's not for those who are, who are thinking they'd like to be married alone, but it's for all of us. And I'm hoping that we'll see God's purpose in, in marriage. There's, there's bigger things, there's deeper things here um, for all of us, so stay tuned. And then the third important thing to say, and I'm going to slow down at this point, is just to say that this is a topic which we will all feel um, in different ways and to varying degrees, a sense perhaps of failure or lack or longings unfulfilled or regrets. Um, so even as we try and just set out what the Bible is saying here, I'm aware this may be a long way from our experience, past or present, and this may raise some difficult things. And so I want to say that we come to topics like this in the refuge and safe place of Jesus, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Paul goes on to say in that section of Romans 8, he said, who is there to condemn you? He actually asks that question. And the answer is no one, not me, not the church, not even the Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we approach topics like this. We want to look and see what the Bible says, yes, but we do it from that safety, that safe place hidden away in the refuge of Jesus. And we work out what it means to follow him from there. Wherever we are, wherever we are on these things, we work out what it means to follow Jesus from there. And the safety, like encapsulated in his love and freedom. Okay. So let's read the text, shall we? Um, hopefully you've got a Bible, or if you've got a Bible app, it is Ephesians chapter 5, and it's 21 to 33. So I'm going to read that for us. Ephesians chapter 5. And on the church Bibles, by the way, that is, well, not Isaiah chapter 5. Where on earth is that? Uh, 1,176. There we go. Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And everyone's sitting there thinking, I wonder what he's going to do with this. <laughs> I usually give the difficult passages to Linda or uh, June or something like that. But all right. <laughs> Three headings, okay. How should we be thinking of marriage? That's number one. Number two, what should husbands and wives be thinking about? That's the second point. And then watch the overarching. Right, we're going to land on this, on this final question. What is the overarching purpose of marriage? Okay, those are the three little anchors. So here we go. First of all, how should we be thinking of marriage? Verse 21. It's the top of that section there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, really, this verse is, is bolted onto the last section. In the NIV, in the, in the, in the church Bibles in front of you, it's, it begins this next section, this, these exhortations to husbands and wives, but really it belongs to the last section. So uh, from verse 20, you might read, uh, giving thanks, this is Paul saying, give thanks, church, give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, if you cycle way back, well, not way back, to about verse 18, um, it's don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit and sing psalms and songs and encourage each other and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right, so Spirit-filled church. What does a Spirit-filled church look like? Uh, it looks like a church full of people who are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How about that? Spirit-filled church. So the church is the place, isn't it? The church is the place where I don't know, I might be important in the world, I might be wealthy, I might be influential in the world, but when we come together, when we gather together as, as the people of God, when we come together here, I say, I'm going to make myself lower. I'm going to lower myself and submit to you, my brother, whoever this is, or sister, out of reverence for Christ. Because I recognize in you someone made in the image of God, and I need you, I need you to show me the way of Jesus. You and everyone in the church, together, the church is God's instrument, the church is God's instrument to help me 
to help me grow as a Christian, to see my blind spots, to knock some rough edges off me, to grow and mold me and shape me as a disciple of Jesus. That is the church's purpose, and we submit ourselves to one another to become more like Christ together, submitting ourselves to this. So it's a bit like a rock tumbler. I've, um, I've spent 15 minutes watching a YouTube video on rock tumbling this week, so uh, I'm going to share with you a bit about rock tumbling. You can get a whole load of rocks, right? Maybe pick them up off the beach. And um, different colored ones, and they're all a bit matte and rubbish and don't look very nice and that sort of thing, right? You put them in one of these sort of barrels and get big ones, small ones, you get them off, you know. And then they go in there for ages. You put water in there and bits and pieces. Uh, and like a, a month later, like you spin this thing around for a month, different sections, but anyway, uh, I'm an expert on these things now. And then when they, when they come out, when they come out, these, these rocks that looked like very ordinary, dull, uninteresting, are like beautiful, shiny, colorful, sort of marbled, and like really, really lovely, polished sort of things. Right, but in the barrel, they're all just like smashing on against each other, you know, knocking all the edges, producing something over a long period of time, which looks, in the end, really, really beautiful. Now, church is a bit like a rock tumbler. We're all kind of submitting ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, jumping in the rock tumbler, right? Where we're going to start shaping each other, going to be knocking rough edges off each other, getting to know each other. That's going to be difficult. I'm going to show you things. You're going to show me things. But over time, it's going to produce something of great, great beauty. And by the way, we're not natural gemstones, aren't we? We know that, right? We don't, we don't come out of the womb loving God and loving our neighbor, right? The Christian understanding of ourselves is that we come, we come into this life quite selfish and quite turned away from the living God. So the church is this place where we're going to turn around together and become people who love God and love one another more and more. It's going to take time but we're going to submit ourselves to one another, we're going to jump into the rock tumbler together out of reverence for Christ. Now, do you see then that Paul's kind of running on this idea, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, and then just go straight into marriage, straight into husbands and wives. So it's like his thoughts, as he's been thinking about the church, just lead straight in. Like, just very naturally go straight into the arena of marriage. And that is because, this is, this is what I'm suggesting, that marriage is like the rock tumbler squared. <laughs> you know what I mean by squared, right? So, four, double four is? Double four first. Double four is eight. Hallelujah. Four squared... 16. It's good, isn't it? I used to be a maths teacher. That was quite satisfying. Squared, right? We're going to intensify this quite significantly. So if the church is the rock tumbler, right? Marriage is the rock tumbler squared. So if you don't like church, <laughs> you're not too keen on church, you might want to have a little think. Oh dear. 
submit to one another. Christian marriage really is going to be that, isn't it? It's going to be that I'm choosing to marry this person and hopefully they're choosing to marry me because we're going to jump into a rock tumbler together and we're going to go on a journey where we become together beautiful for Christ. It's Christian marriage. We want to do that together. Now, it is often said, let's just address one of the quite common things that's said in our day and age, just before we move on from this. It's often said, and I think I understand why, it's often said, I want to marry someone who loves me for who I am, and I don't want to marry someone who's out to change me. Let's have a think about that for a minute. If you're marrying someone in order not to be be changed, not to have any sense of, not not to go on this journey of transformation or not to have any sort of sense of obligation put on me, then what are you marrying for? Because really in that scenario, what you might marry for is, is for someone to supplement me. So it might be that, I, you know, I, I feel lonely or I, I want some fellowship, some company, some intimacy, those kind of things. So I need to marry this person because they're going to take away those feelings of loneliness. They're going to give me someone to be with, to fellowship with. They're going to supplement me, right? But it's not the journey of transformation. It's not the rock tumbler. It's not submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Or it might be, I want to, I want, I want to marry this person because they're just going to enhance my lifestyle. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. Maybe we can afford a bigger place together. We can start a family together. Right? This is going to be greatly life-enhancing. Right? It will be that. But it's still just a supplement. You're, kind of, you're coming on board to supplement my life. Whereas Christian marriage is the rock tumbler. Um, we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ to become something beautiful for him. Now, if that's the general principle for the church, the big thing, and then marriage, the intensified version of that, then how should husbands and wives, this is my second Second point now, how should husbands and wives um, approach one another in marriage? Let's start with the husbands. Um, Because actually Paul opens up about six barrels on the husbands. He gives six verses here to husbands, only three to wives. So let's just take out the two main ideas. There's two main ideas for husbands, and here they are. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then verse 28, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. It's the two kind of ways he's trying to appeal to the husbands here. So Christian husband, your job is to lay down your life. My job is to lay down my life to serve and die, called for, for my wife and treat her with the kind of care and respect I would treat my own body. So you know when you get a speck of dust in your eye, right? Well, blokes, when we get a speck of dust, well, me, when I get a speck of dust in my eye, everything stops, right? No one is allowed to do anything. I stop everything I do. Someone get me some water, please. And I'm sort of, 
you know, sluicing my eye out and blinking a million times until finally, oh, it's okay. I'm all right now. Everyone can resume their lives. A speck of dust in my eye and everything stops. Husbands, treat your wives with the same kind of life-stopping, agenda-stopping care and attention as you would there. In fact, Paul goes way beyond that, doesn't he? Be prepared to go the way of the cross. Can I remind you that the cross was shameful, undignified, unjustified, difficult, pain? Jesus went there for his bride, the church. Husbands, you're called to go there for your wives. And our tendency, men, guys, husbands, is to ignore. Our tendency, I think, is to ignore and overlook. It's to ignore and overlook, perhaps, the desires, opinions, ambitions of our spouses, our wives. So catch yourself when you do that. Catch yourself when you're lazy. Catch yourself when you're obstinate. Catch yourself when we're putting everything else in front of the priorities and opinions and ambitions of our wives. Catch, catch ourselves when we do that and say, no, I've got to be more bothered about this one than all of those things. However important I may think they are, that is the call. Lay down your life, right, husbands? Okay. Wives, the call is no less intense. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, just as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to your husbands in everything. So if the tendency for men is to sort of overlook, right, if our tendency, blokes, if the Apostle Paul is kind of addressing our tendency to overlook and undervalue the desires and opinions and ambitions of our wives, then the tendency of wives, as Paul's addressing here, is perhaps to be overbearing or undermining of a husband's desires and opinions and ambitions. Now, I don't think we need the New Testament to tell us this, really. It doesn't have to be a spirit-filled, spirit-inspired word of God to tell us this, because all the jokes run this way. Have you noticed that? Like every single joke in our culture that runs on relationships and marriage basically makes the point Husbands are lazy and unconcerned, and wives are overbearing. That's how the jokes run. And they're funny because they're true, <laughs> by and large. That's the caricature. And Paul's kind of addressing that. He's saying Christian marriage should not run like the jokes. So wives, look for those tendencies to be overbearing, perhaps for ways in which you might manipulate, manipulate, undermine, duck and dive to try and push through plans, catch yourself there. Catch yourself, say no. It's not what I'm here, it's not what I'm here to do. I want to have the kind of heart response to my husband as the church shows towards Jesus, that willing, loving devotion. And that, too, is all-encompassing. That is a laying down of your life as well.
Now, I'm going to attempt a little bit of ninja preaching here. It's what I call ninja preaching, which is essentially, I'm going to dive into a controversial topic called headship for about four minutes. And then I'm going to come straight back out again, because I don't want that to be the main part of this sermon. There's, uh, there's plenty more to sort of chew on here, but I'm going to just jump in there for four minutes and then jump back out. Well, three minutes. Let's see if I can do it. All right. A bit of ninja preaching. Okay. So you will notice, I am sure everyone has clocked the fact that uh, we're called to submit to one another in marriage. Fine. Both parties are called to lose their lives for the other. Okay. It's a big call, but all right but in different ways. Now, here is what I think the New Testament presents to us as a marriage-saving, unity-creating principle that we're leading, we're being led to. And I'm going to call it, I'm going to kind of summarize this whole section and this headship idea as final say. By the way, it's not my idea, it's someone else's, but I've heard it called final say headship. And it works like this. Let me give you two examples just to kind of illustrate the point. So you're out, you're maybe buying, um, I don't know, a, a car or something together. And your wife wants to buy a blue car. But you want to buy a white car, husband. Right? Now, that one is pretty straightforward. Right? Because the husband there is going to go, fine. Right? If my wife wants to get the blue car we will get the blue car. I will lay down my own agenda, my own priorities here. For your sake, we will get the blue car. Nice and easy. However, there are genuinely you know, difficult decisions to be made in married life. Right, let's, not, let's not overlook that. There are difficult times when there's difference of opinion and a husband may think they're genuinely doing the very best thing for their wife. They want to go one way and make this decision because they are, they are convinced this is the best thing for you. This is the best thing for you, and it's maybe the best thing for the family and all that sort of thing. The wife, however, on the other hand, thinks, no, this would be the better way to go. We should do this, whatever. Right? You could think of many, many different scenarios where this could be pretty, pretty serious. Now, you might listen to one another for some time. You might pray together, you might read the scriptures together, you might involve other people, get people involved, you might look to wiser, more helpful, godly Christian friends to help you work some of these things through. Right? But the biblical principle is, in the end, the Bible puts the decision and the accountability for the decision with the husband. Now that's the principle. Right? And, and in a sense, right, you can do away with that. Right? You can go, well, I'm not having that. But you've got to think, there has to be some way. You've then got to, in a sense, number one, you've got to deal with Ephesians 5 and figure out what that's saying. And then number two, you've still got, you've still got a problem. Right, what, are you going to throw a dice? You know, or are you going to give, it's going to go one way or the other. What are you going to do when you come to those decision-making uh, T-junctions and you don't know where to go? The principle, it's quite a simple one, really. It's quite elegant is to go, okay, husbands, it's your call, you're accountable. That's it. Now, that is it. That is headship. And it's not anything else. The problem with this, this biblical idea of headship is that people start chucking all sorts of things in there. 
like women should stay at home and do nappies and, you know, clean dishes and all that, can men do the bins and go out to work? Like, all of that's just cultural. That's all just been chucked in there. Maybe it's come from the way, you know, my grandparents, whatever they did it. All of that just gets thrown in the mix here. There's nothing, there's none of that. None of that here. Nothing of that here. There's nothing to say that the, the wife can't go out and earn the, the big job and the husband stays at home and looks after the kids. And all that. None of that has got anything to do with the headship principle that we see here in Ephesians 5. None of it. Neither do we immediately extend this headship principle outside of marriage and go into the church. Right? So suddenly there's going to be now headship in the church, male headship in the church, or male headship in society at large. We're going to set up a big patriarchy and it's all going to be run by blokes. That's not here either. Right? It's not go beyond what is written. Right? So the, that is where we start getting problems, is that we then just sort of draw straight lines between marriage headship and then all these other things, or we chuck in loads of cultural baggage. Right? That's where you start having loads of problems. Right? So we do away with all that, but don't lose the principle. It's a helpful principle. And by the way, it is not grounded in first century Jewish culture. Paul grounds this in God, in theology, in Christ and the church here and elsewhere, in creation, in Adam and Eve. Right, so these ideas aren't just grounded in like Paul's kind of first century sensibilities. These are grounded in much, much deeper things. So that's it, right? I'm coming back out now. That's my four-minute ninja preach on headship, and uh, I'm going to come in then with our final point. So if that was uh, the purpose in marriage, that's husbands and wives in marriage. Finally, what is the overarching principle here? And then we're done. The point. The point in marriage, right? Some want to see marriage as this weak, feeble, useless, man-made institution. I don't want to get involved in all of that because it's just, it's probably going to fail. It's doomed to fail. If we get married, it will probably fail, so let's just do away with all of that. Some want to put marriage in that, in that box and to kind of really just say it's useless and rubbish. I don't want to go with that. Um, more commonly, actually, I think someone, put, you know, Typically, really, people want to elevate marriage and make it the be-all and end-all thing, right? The intimate relationship that I might have with someone else for the rest of my life is the thing. It's the only thing to live for. That is it. Once I've got it, I've arrived. That's the meaning of life, right? The Bible doesn't go on either of those tracks. Verse 31. For this reason, so he's quoting Genesis, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. That's marriage. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So Christian marriage, that intimacy, that tenderness, that exclusivity, that self-giving that you see in marriage is meant to showcase this bigger reality. It's there to showcase Christ and the church. Like the trailer for a film. When you watch a trailer for a film, you don't watch the trailer and go, oh, you know, that was good. Oh, I enjoyed that trailer. Now, a trailer makes you go, oh, 
I really want to watch the feature-length story. I want to go and see the film. I watch the trailer. It looks good. I go and see the film. Marriage. God has given marriage to us as a kind of a, a trailer. Now, you can get lost in the trailer. Whereas it's supposed to set you on course for the feature-length story of God that he will bring together his church, his people, with his Christ, the bridegroom, forever in perfect fellowship, intimacy, exclusivity, um, without tears or suffering or pain or hardship anymore. That is the great story of the gospel, right? And in order for us to get it, it's like the Lord's like, I need a powerful, um, like visceral symbol, illustration for what I'm doing. The great overarching story of creation. What I am doing, I need something so that my people will understand how deep and wide and high and perfect is the love of Christ. So he institutes marriage. And so we jump on with that. We do, we do get involved with marriage. And a lot of us will and a lot of us are. But it's meant to be this foretaste, this preparation, in fact. It's a kind of a rock tumbler, isn't it? It's an intense rock tumbler. It's preparing us and giving us an appetite for the bigger thing, the bigger reality which is Christ and the church. Whether we're married, whether we're preparing to be married, or whether we're single for whatever reason, this is the bigger deal. So don't lose it. Don't lose it. The bigger deal here is that our heart's longing and desires, those deepest desires of the, of the human heart, would be fulfilled and satisfied in Jesus and marriage previews and prepares us for it. The rock tumbler. Let's pray. Just make our own responses for God in this. Lord, we pray for you just as we make room for you to speak. I do pray that your ways and wisdom would work through the scriptures that we've read here. And the same spirit who inspired these words may be present in this room inspiring our hearts. And at work, bringing these ideas and principles to bear on our lives, our marriages uh, now. And particularly at this time of Lent, as we enter this season of Lent, Lord, and it's a time of um, contrition and repentance and renewal and transformation. Lord, we, we pray that uh, this might be an apt time, a proper and fitting time to review these things for ourselves and for our marriages. Let me close with this prayer for Lent. 
Almighty God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, fasted 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted as we are, yet without sin, give us grace to discipline ourselves in obedience to your Spirit. And as you know our weakness, so may we know your power to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.